Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning. It's 830 on Wednesday, June 8th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... We recap the congressional primaries and how the digital world will have to adapt to the world after Roe. Then a new book explores Native American identity in William Faulkner's writings. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Democratic slate of congressional candidates for the November midterm election are set. Their Republican counterparts will need a number of runoffs to settle things. In two of three districts, Republican incumbents were not able to secure the necessary 50 percent of votes to move on to the general election. In the third district, Michael Guest not only fell short of the mark, but came in behind challenger Michael Cassidy. In the heavily contested 4th District, a Republican incumbent finished above his six challengers, but with only three or rather 31.6 percent of the vote, Congressman Stephen Palazzo will face a runoff against Sheriff Mike Ezel, who edged out Clay Wagner for the final runoff spot. First District Republican incumbent Trent Kelly defeated his primary challenger by nearly 80 points. And Second District Democratic incumbent Benny Thompson won 96 percent of the vote. In the contest to see which Republican will challenge Thompson, Brian Flowers advanced to a runoff. He will face Ronald Eller. The Democrats can turn their full attention to the midterm elections with all of their party nominations secure. In the 1st District, Diane Black will challenge Representative Trent Kelly. In the 3rd and 4th Districts, Shirowski Young and Johnny Dupree, respectively, await the winners of the Republican runoffs in those districts. Runoff elections are scheduled for June 28th. The general midterm elections are November 8th. Hundreds of Mississippians have already submitted their applications to participate in the state's new medical cannabis program. But Mississippi Department of Health officials say it could be the end of the year before medical marijuana is available in the state. That's according to Chris Jones, who's the director of the Mississippi Medicinal Cannabis Program. We anticipate that it will probably be the end of the calendar year before there is legal product available through the dispensaries. And that is because businesses have to get established, they have to hire, um, and they have to get crops uh, in the ground. The department opened the licensing application process last week for patients and medical practitioners for facilities that will grow, process, and test the products and for businesses that will transport them and dispose of waste. The State Department of Revenue will start accepting applications July 1st for dispensaries. Coming up, as the U.S. moves towards a world after Roe, everything we thought we knew about reproductive rights could change, and our digital world will need to change with it. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. As the U.S. teeters on the threshold of a world after Roe, everything we thought we knew about reproductive rights could change, and our digital world will need to change with it. As Click Here podcast host Dina Temple Raston reports for the Gulf States Newsroom, a 2017 Mississippi case provides a window into the future without Roe. It began in Starkville, Mississippi, a college town about 125 miles from Jackson. A woman named Latisse Fisher, already a mother of three, had given birth to a stillborn. But when the paramedics arrived at her house that night, they decided something was off. From the moment they arrived at her house, they alleged, at least in the media, publicly, and even in, in other places, that they found, they found the scene suspicious. That's Lori Bertram Roberts, and she's now the executive director of the Yellowhammer Foundation, an Alabama-based reproductive rights organization. Roberts found out about Fisher's arrest for the murder of that stillborn child the way we find out about a lot of things these days, on Facebook. I get a Facebook message. It's not even a phone call. I get a Facebook message with a link to the story. In the picture, Fisher looks like she stopped crying just long enough to pose. She declined to speak for the story, but gave Roberts permission to tell her side of things. If you're not moved by her mugshot, like just the visible pain and anguish on her face, um, I don't know what to say about you as a human. Um, I was just so disturbed by that picture. The local district attorney declined to comment on the record about the case. What we do know is that the charges against Fisher were based on two very disparate things— the first was an antiquated test from the 17th century known as a float test. You take a piece of lung tissue from a fetus, you put it in water, and if it floats, then supporters say it suggests that the child wasn't actually stillborn. It took a breath. The problem is the test is completely unscientific. It's one of the things that's used to prosecute people in stillbirth cases for home birth. So it's one of the things that if you're in the birth justice community, you know. And the second piece of evidence against Fisher was more modern. It was the search history on her phone. It indicated that at some point during her pregnancy, she had searched for abortion pills. There was no indication that she had bought any or taken any, but investigators said the search itself went to motive and intent. It suggested she didn't want this baby. The case was eventually dismissed, but it raised the specter of law enforcement using your digital footprint against you if abortion becomes illegal in the future. Your phone is the snitch. It's a snitch in your pocket. Researcher Zach Edwards explains. Every app that you download, the permissions that you give that app, all of the other companies that are integrated into that app 
also get those same permissions. And, and that's where the trust fall happens. Until earlier this month, anyone could just call up the homepage of a data broker called Placer AI and type in the words Planned Parenthood. It would provide the location of all the Planned Parenthood clinics in the U.S. Click again, and you could see the pattern data about who visited. Edward showed me exactly how it works. And let me get my screen sharing going on here. Um, on his screen is the Pacer AI homepage. So right now we are looking at a map of a rural location where one of the three houses on this screen visited a Planned Parenthood. So you can see where people were right before they went to the clinic. And if you zoom into the starting point and it happens to be a house, well, you've probably found where they live. And you can also parse different details about the audience. So this is a data broker, so they are going to have demographic data and other data that's available to layer on top of this location data. Demographic data, like whether a woman may live there, which could explain who had just been at Planned Parenthood, or perhaps a doctor lives there. And that person might be performing abortions. It's uh, a choose-your-own, non-compliant data adventure brought to you by big tech and basically allowed because we have no laws to speak of. In a statement, Placer AI said that aside from a few researchers, it has no record of anyone doing this kind of search. Placer AI has since tweaked its search engine, but it didn't remove the data. You just search for something else. You add a word or two, you remove a word or two. Um, and that process to just refine your own query. All this gets more troubling if you're doing these searches in rural areas where it's just easier to pinpoint who is who. Part of the problem is that all this data collection and its sale to others is minimally regulated. And while there's some momentum building for some kind of data protection law here in the U.S., it could take a while. So in the meantime, Lori Roberts has some advice. I want to stress right now, not just that you erase the digital evidence and that you use a VPN and that you use stuff like Signal and that you, you know, that you use these things to protect yourself digitally. And she suggests something even simpler. It is super important to be careful who you talk to about what you may or may not be doing. Close your mouth. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Dina Temple Raston. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting, WBHM in Alabama, and WWNO in New Orleans. Still ahead, a new book explores Native American identity in William Faulkner's writings. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The book Faulkner and the Native South is out now from the University Press of Mississippi. It's a collection of essays that examine how legendary Mississippi writer William Faulkner crafted his Native American characters. I spoke with Jay Watson and Annette Tresfer, who edited the book. Here's Annette. Faulkner has Native American characters in his fiction, sprinkled into his fiction all the way from the 1930s well into the 1950s. And the question about, you know, what did Faulkner know about Native Americans is actually a really interesting question. So when I did some research on what Faulkner understood about what he would have called Indians in his fiction, I found out some really interesting information. So one thing is that Faulkner understood that Indians didn't just vanish, um, but that they were legally ousted in removal treaties with Andrew Jackson's government uh, from the southeastern United States. He also understood that that meant that several Native American peoples were, were able to stay, though, in Mississippi, people who, um, especially Choctaws, who were unwilling to leave, stayed on allotment lands in the Shoba County. Um, that becomes clear when you read an essay by Faulkner that's titled Mississippi, where he makes specific reference um, to that. And Faulkner knows then of remaining Native American peoples in uh, Mississippi. He also, when you take a look at Faulkner's library, we all know what's on the shelf there. Um, Faulkner owned a book called The uh, Mississippi Guide to the Magnolia State, and that had a chapter on um, archaeology and Indians, and some scholars actually believe that he cribbed some information from this book and used it in his fiction. Um, I could go on. I mean, Faulkner has um, surprisingly extensive knowledge of the actual historical situation of Choctaws and Chickasaws in Mississippi. In his uh, stories, he locates them in a town I cannot pronounce. Begins with a Y. How do you pronounce that? So, so, so I can talk a little bit about that, uh, Desiree. I, I think one of the most powerful ways that Faulkner acknowledged those complicated Native histories uh, that Annette was just talking about is that he created a fictional county in North Mississippi, and he gave it an Indian name. He named the county Yaknapatafa, which was based off Chickasaw words. It drew on the Chickasaw language. The phrase meant split land, the kind of land that you might split with the plow for farming, but also the kind of land that there has that there have been long, deep historical conflicts over, including the conflicts between Anglo settlers and the native peoples who originally lived in North Mississippi. So by choosing a native name for his county, Faulkner never lets his reader forget about these older and deeper, more multifaceted histories that are behind the stories that he tells. In this book, there are authors who give their impressions and their perspectives on William Faulkner's writing. One particular uh, writer, Melanie Benson Taylor, says that Faulkner's Indian characters are a little bit ridiculous, colorful fabrications based loosely on popular assumptions. 
Did he write about them in your estimation in a racist way, a compelling way, an empathetic way? How do you see that part of his description of his characters? Yeah. So certainly Faulkner was influenced by figures in American literature, um, characters that, that are that, that sort of fit into the category of the vanishing Indian. Uh, he was probably, um, he definitely read um, James Fenimore Cooper, but he was also, and this is what I believe, and I might maybe disagree a little bit with this author here, who's also clearly understanding that 19th century Choctaws and Chickasaws were actually culturally hybrid people. They had adopted Western clothing and articles from Europe that everybody was pretty fond of. And so when he depicts his Native American characters uh, in some of the early stories and he talks about how they, what they wore and what their hair looked like and that they had a parasol that they were shading themselves with and so on, then I think he he creates them as pretty colorful characters, but he also understood um, this this cultural hybrid identity um, that Native American peoples in the 19th century would have had. Living um, in two worlds, maybe? people were even were biracial, and some uh, Chickasaws and Choctaws in Mississippi owned slaves. And so it was a, a very um, culturally mixed and interesting uh, landscape that he's depicting. How do you see I it? Can, I can add, Desiree, I mm-hmm. can add as, uh, as an editor of the volume that one of the real strengths of this book, I think, is that it presents um, a, a, a real scholarly range of opinions about Faulkner's relationship to his Native characters. And so when I look across the essays in the book, I'm almost tempted to uh, answer that question you asked, all of the above. We do encounter racism in Faulkner's depictions of Indians. They are also sometimes quite compelling. We also encounter empathy, and that whole range of responses you're describing, Faulkner just worked on such a large literary canvas that over over the course of his career, his Indians become many, many different things. And I think um, to such an extent that it actually takes a range of scholars to address the width and the depth of all that. And that's part of the strength of drawing a group of scholars together for a collection like this. Were you ever able to determine why Native Americans were such a big part of his writing in terms of even wanting to name a town after a Choctaw name? I think in creating Yoknapatawpha County, which is an apocryphal county, it is a, a county that William Faulkner um, made up. William Faulkner was really interested over the course of his career in sort of taking the long historical view of Yoknapatawpha County. And so that means that he begins with the so-called wilderness, uh, when Mississippi was still a territory, and even long before that, during the period of the mound builders. So he takes a kind of really long historical view. And when you take that view of a state like Mississippi and you try to map out Yoknapotafa County, then it becomes very clear that Native American peoples were a significant part of that. So Faulkner acknowledges their presence and then dramatizes in some of his fiction 
the removal of the of the Choctaw. So he takes sort of archaeological digs into a kind of like pre-colonial history and um, then talks about the loss of a primeval native ecology and Yoknapatafa gets going really strong for him though only once um, the Indian has, has uh, Indian peoples have left. What do you want people to learn through this? Yeah, so the takeaway um, for me is that uh, when you bring scholars together who are literary scholars, Faulkner experts, anthropologists, and Native American scholars and writers, you get a very sort of interesting sort of canvassing of not only Faulkner's work, but whether or not the term Native South makes actually any sense. I mean, a big question is, what is what is the Native South? What do we mean by that? Does that have any relevance um, to Native American um, cultures and literatures who are more um, tribally based and tribally oriented rather than geographically oriented? So there is a is a tension, a productive way of talking about does a broadly regional understanding of culture uh, make any sense in Native American and what is you know what about this, um, and uh, and and yet, I think what we also see and what the takeaway is that uh, Native peoples uh, from the non-Native sources have a lot in common and have been discussing this area uh, geographically and historically and culturally, sort of filling in um, a presence that we often don't see when we do so-called just traditionally southern literature. So that's huge, and that's important, and that's paradigm shifting in in the field of English studies, so to speak. And I, I would agree that it takes a very diverse group of scholars to address questions that are that complex. Um, I, I'm proud to say this is one of the most diverse gatherings of scholars that we've ever assembled for um, a volume in this series, which the University Press of Mississippi has been publishing for over 40 years now. So in terms of you know, the disciplinary diversity, it, as Annette mentioned, it not only includes literary scholars, but it includes creative writers and artists. It included historians and anthropologists, and, uh, and it also included Native intellectuals and artists themselves. Professors Jay Watson and Annette Tresfer with the University of Mississippi, who both were involved in the editing of Faulkner and the Native South. Thank you so much for your insight on this volume and bringing attention to, as you said, something that has needed a a spotlight. And thank you for doing that. Thank you so much. It was our pleasure, Desiree. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.